on this episode of the Jason Wright Show. World yeah. freaking series champion. How cool is that? Yeah, so it's like, you know, so what'd you do today, We may Jason? have to, uh, we have to do this more often if that brings that kind of luck, right? You know, why not? Why not? Because <laughs> I'm going to take full credit because you were an almost World Series champion right. last time. Now you're an official World Series champion. And this is the first time I've ever been in the same room with a World Series trophy as well as a World Series champion. So I'm going to see how many times I can say World Series champion throughout this You interview. can't say it enough for me. You can't say it enough. <laughs> What's up, Jason? Dude. All right. So, like I said, this time we're just going to keep this casual. Yep. And you know what's cool is the last time you were on the Jason Wright show, well, actually, it was the Texas Titan podcast back then. Oh, yeah. It was you were my first guest, my first professional athlete. And now you are a world yeah. freaking series champion. How cool is that? Yeah. So, it's like, you know, so what'd you do today? We Jason? may have to, uh, we have to do this more often if that brings that kind of luck, right? You know, why not? Why not? Because <laughs> I'm going to take full credit because you were an almost world series champion right. last time. Now you're an official world series champion. And this is the first time I've ever been in the same room with a world series trophy as well as a world series champion. So, I'm going to see how many times I can say world series champion throughout this You interview. can't say it enough for me. You can't <laughs> say it enough for me at all. I promise you. Well, it's a cool experience, no doubt about it. Well, all right, so tell me about the difference between this Braves team and the other team that almost got there because that was a very special team that you were on that yes. that was a rain, as you said before, a rain delay a rain, away. Yeah, 15 minutes away yeah. from ending a curse, yeah. right? Or from actually that helped in the Cubs curse. Yeah, um, yeah. But this team was built, the team I was on with the Braves – that just won that trophy right there is built off. I mean, bigger payroll, a lot more talented players than we had in 16 with the, with the Indians. Right. I say more talented players. They were the more well-known players. Um, you also had guys like Max free kind of coming into their own a little bit, um, the past couple of years for the Braves that, um, you know, kind of put us on his back and carried us a little bit. Um, you know, we had a lot more, we had a lot of injuries on both teams. Um, a lot of huge injuries, actually. Michael Brantley in 16 and Ronald Acuna, um, or Michael Brantley with the Indians and Ronald Acuna with the Braves this year. Um, but they both have pretty good similarities in the aspect of we all felt like we were blue-collar players trying to play for one goal. We were all pulling in the same direction. The team in 16, when we were constructing that team, I say we were constructing that team, when the ownership constructed that team, um, on paper, you look at the names, they weren't established yet. And then you had a couple of veteran guys like myself, Michael Brantley, um, Mike Napoli, uh, Jan Gomes that were, you know, had established themselves in the league, but, you know, weren't the big name all-stars that, you know, um, other teams have had in the past. Uh, Mike Napoli came over and watching how he went about his business every day, day in and day out was one of the more incredible things I've seen out of a, a big leaguer in a long time. Him and, um, I mean, he just went about, his, he was on the bench every day at six o'clock watching the and I asked him one time I said what are you doing out here at six o'clock he said you know we'd get through playing cribbage in Tito's office and we'd go out to the field I said what are you doing he's like I like to watch the stands wake up I like to watch the stadium come to life it's one of the more cool things I, I, I do in baseball so I started doing it with him and it was neat it was neat to watch his whole routine he come out there and just watch and then go out there do his little sprints come back in um and before you know it you had six or seven position guys out there doing the same thing um, and it wasn't anything that, you know, was necessary. It had to be done. But you just saw like a, a glimpse of 
you know, Lindors, the Jose Ramirez of the world, the younger guys that end up being perennial all-stars and faces of the Cleveland Indians at the time go out there with him, and they just sort of watch him. And it wasn't that, you know, they were going out there and doing extra stuff. It was just their mind was more focused on what the task was at hand that night as opposed to being in the locker room, you know, checking your phone, things like that. It was – they were outside. They were in the elements. They were watching the fans. They were watching the field wake up, watching the stadium wake up. Um, and then – their whole brain was just more focused on that. And that was that whole team's kind of MO was what can we do today to beat you by one run? That was it. That's all we cared about. And we ended up winning, I think, 14 in a row that year, 22 in a row the next year. It was just that team just had this love for each other that it's hard to explain because we weren't the most talented group, but as a unit, it was – Probably one of the more special teams I've ever played on my entire life, um, going all the way back to T-ball. I won a few state championships in T-ball all the way up to this, was that unit was just the guys meshed well. They gelled well. They, they, we wanted to play cards together. At, after each game on the road or at home, we'd go to somebody's house. Or we'd go to the hotel room and play cards and um, hang out, talk about the game, things like that. It was just a group of guys that all pulled in the same direction at the same time at all times. And um, Guy got in trouble, guy had injuries, and next guy would come up and step up. And it was um, just a pure joy to be a part of both teams, actually. What do you think the, the secret is? Because, I mean, a lot of people, they hear that. And, and there's so many sports analogies, right? right. Business people are constantly looking to sports teams to try to optimize their teams and build a successful organization. And when you're dealing with a bunch of millionaires at the best of what they do, getting to play a game that they've played since they were children. There's so many dynamics there that you have to work. Josh, what is it that brings a team, a unit together like that so that the the collective unit is so able to perform? Is it just that that chemistry that just happened to be there? Or was the chemistry something that you guys deliberately built? Because I know you took on a leadership role yes. with that team that we talked last time and when I was over here hanging out mm -hmm. that I did not know. And so did it start in the clubhouse? And, and how it, did you I think it does. I, 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 I think it does. I think it, I think it starts with high-character guys, for one. Um, and those high-character guys having the right mindset of checking your ego at the door. It's not about the name on the back of your jersey. It's about the name on the front of your jersey. And it's about – Culture, right? What kind of culture are you trying to preach? What kind of culture are you trying to build? And it doesn't take – it doesn't it doesn't happen overnight. Um, I can remember me and Michael Brantley basically went to um, our manager's office, uh, Terry Francona, and we were going through a rebuilding stage from 10, 11, 12. I say rebuilding stage. We were, we were just not good, period. We weren't good. We were losing games, um, 500 record at best. They hired Terry Francona. Um, year or two goes by, I'm on the injury list, all 13 from a UCL surgery, come back in the next year. And, um, he basically asked me and Brantley to take control of the clubhouse to figure it out, to basically get everybody to have the same mindset as what we were having of, we want to win period. However, it, however it takes, whatever it costs, we want to win. Um, but then measure obviously. So we started, you could cut, you kind of, kind of start seeing the culture change, right? We didn't, we weren't necessarily you know when I first got caught to the big leagues I was told never to sit on a leather couch and still to this day I've never sat on a leather couch in a clubhouse just for the simple respect of what a veteran told me not to do 
we weren't that we weren't the same type of veterans when when this was going on. We we wanted to welcome those young guys in as quickly as we could to try to get the best out of them as immediately as we could. Um, and it was check your ego at the door. Like you, you put your pants on the same way we put ours on, same way the other team puts theirs on. It's not about who you are. It's not about Michael Brantley, Josh Tomlin, uh, Mike Napoli, Lindor, Young. It wasn't about these guys. It wasn't about them. It was about the Cleveland Indians and what we wanted to achieve. You want to ch achieve true immortality in baseball, you have to go win one of those. And if you don't go win one of those, you will be forgotten unless you're just a Hall of Fame player like a, um, you know, like the guys that are in the Hall of Fame. Like they, they don't lose their name because of where they're at. Right. Same thing here. But you don't – the most talented teams I've ever seen on a baseball field don't make it very far whenever you get a bunch of guys that are, you know, high-paid athletes, high-paid uh, guys that are superstars that – you try to build a whole team full of those, you, you start losing that you start losing that edge of trying to compete, trying to win. And that was what we were trying to accomplish. We weren't trying to accomplish. We didn't want all the the big name guys to go out and buy, you know, go out and try to get 150, 200 million dollar guys. It was give me the grinder over there that worked his, you know, he's worked his ass off in the minor leagues for two or three years, four years, whatever it is, but knows how to win, knows how to compete. That was, that was the biggest word that we probably preached to ourselves nonstop that year was we're going to compete. We may not be the best team on paper against you, but I can promise you, you go ask any team that played us in 2016, they would tell you they were, they were hell. Yeah. We were feisty. We, were, we, were, we, we ran the bases well. We took, we took extra bases. We, got, we made outs on the bases trying to take extra bases, being aggressive. Um, you know, we gave up our fair share of home runs being aggressive in the zone, but we were going to make them earn it. We weren't going to walk a lot of guys. And um, I think that year or the next year after that, we actually set a single-season war record for a starting staff, pitching staff um, in all of baseball. And it wasn't that we had the best stuff, anything like that. It was we wanted the biggest stage. We wanted the best teams. We wanted, we wanted the very, very best at all times so that when we got to where we were getting to, it was nothing. It was just like, okay, we get to wake up and go play a game today. Yeah. The World Series games were nothing to us at that time compared – um, to the years prior to that, we'd never been to a playoff game at all. And then, you know, you're just trying to stay afloat and try to make some money or trying to just establish stuff in the big leagues. It wasn't like that anymore. It was we developed a culture. We started a culture in there that our job is to compete. Compete day in and day out and see what happens in the year. And all right, so you said a lot of things in there. And as you know, like I'm actually putting a course together right now. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is a growth mindset. You just basically described, I mean, a team. I mean, how you put together a team with a growth mindset is pretty amazing. And you didn't even know what the hell growth mindset was. I did was not. Yeah, you <laughs> did not until you said that the it, other day, yeah. And then, like you, but you had a performance coach, which, by the way, is interesting the way b baseball has changed now. You Like, you told me some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that you guys, the neurological aspect of, right. of baseball and just the, uh, the – it's so data-driven now, but also – so for the listener, just so that – and if you're watching on YouTube, the whole concept of a growth mindset was really pioneered by a uh, professor at Stanford named Carol Dweck who basically said that you've got two types of mindsets. You've got a fixed mindset and you've got a growth mindset. Now, I am a recovering fixed mindset. When I was young, Josh – here's what's funny. Okay, so all of the athletic ability – that you were lacking, I had. Right. Dude, I was the I was the fastest runner, had an arm. I can still to this day at 47 jump higher than most people, but I didn't have 
a growth mindset. I was so good with just natural athletic ability that it caused, it, it hampered me. It held me back. And here's the, here's the story I love to tell. Whenever I was in seventh grade, it's whenever we played football for the first time, organized football, and everybody wants to be the quarterback at mm -hmm. that age, right? Unless you've got a fixed mindset. I wouldn't play quarterback because I thought everybody wants to be quarterback. And if everybody wants to be quarterback, then that means I can't be quarterback. And by the way, I'm supposed to be really good. I've always been good at whatever. What if I'm not good enough? So I'll just play fullback because I can use my speed and my size at that time. A guy like you, just like you described that team, will be like, hell yeah. yeah. I will be – I don't yeah. care what my talent is, what my athletic – I will get there. And you know a great example that is Tom Brady, right? No doubt. Had, didn't have the athletic ability. So all that to say – Talk a little bit about, and I'm probably going to use this. I want to use this clip, but it's not very often that you have a freaking major league baseball <laughs> player with you, you know, with a World Series trophy behind you. I'm probably going to use this in my course. So for any of you that end up taking the six-week Vitruvian Challenge, you may see this uh, again. But kind of talk about what, now that you kind of understand a growth mindset, what it's meant to you and how you have faced those challenges of, you know, your, your Tommy John injury. You're, uh, you're just not all of a sudden getting moved saying you're only going to pitch and you had never just been a pitcher. There's so right. many points in your career where you had to have that mindset of, okay. And then I, I love, and I'm going to use this in a book, in your book or something, the fine, give me the damn ball. Give me the damn ball. I freaking love it. And that <laughs> might be what we name your book. Give me the damn ball. You know, That's but, a... but just talk about what the, how you, now that you understand that you are a possessor of a, in, an incredible mindset, how it has influenced your career as an athlete. See, I, as of a couple of weeks ago, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to answer that, that question because I didn't know what a growth mindset, fixed mindset was or anything like that. I just always knew I was the smallest, usually the smallest person on the team. Um, not the most talented person on the team by any means, still not. Um, and I threw slower than everybody else probably my entire life. Um, so I understood at that point, I, I guess I started not understanding the growth mindset aspect of this, but I understand what I had to think in my head to make me a better player overall. And what I did was I started thinking, okay, if I can't throw 100 miles an hour or at the time 94 miles an hour, then I better be able to hold runners well. I better be able to... Um, fill my position well, um, and I better be able to, you know, make the routine plays at all times. Um, may not be able to make all the spectacular plays at shortstop position, whatever position I was playing at the time, but um, I knew I had to do all the little things correctly and do them a lot better than everybody else because if I didn't, I was going to be overlooked. Um, but like what you said about the quarterback aspect, for me, when I see something like that, I, the first thought in my mind was, I hope everybody goes out for it. I want to see how I stack up. See, I, it's I, not I, that I'm, I, don't, I think I'm better than them. I just want to see how, how, much do I, how much do I have to work to be better than that guy. That's what I want to know. I want to see that guy work. I want to see what he does because if I feel like I see him and I think, okay, my talent's not quite to where he is, but he's lazy. I can, I can eventually take that job or I can eventually help him to be a better quarterback. Like That's the kind of stuff that goes through my head is – and it's probably, it's probably hindered my career to have been in the aspect of being having better numbers. But if I see somebody that comes in, a younger player, for instance, so, um, you know, say we, there's multiple people that I've had to go 
that have had to come up to the big leagues and, and not shadow me because I'm a good player by any means, but shadow me because I, I like to work, I like to, to study, I like to understand the game better, I like to understand human beings better. Um, and they would say, shadow you, shadow me. So they would walk around and they would do everything that I would do or, or talk to me about you know, how, what my game plan for that week was or anything like that. But So my thought process when I see something like that, like the quarterback situation, if I see that, I think if I can make that guy better, it makes our receivers better. Our receivers make our defense better because we're on the field more. The offense is on the field more. Our defense is resting more. I see a whole picture for an organization. And I think that's because I've been in sports my entire life. This is I'm 37 years old. I've been playing baseball, football, basketball since I was three. Only thing I've ever known in my life, right? At some point, now I'm not really sure when it happened, probably high school, uh, junior college, or maybe in the minor leagues, I started thinking to myself, like, there, there's – and I've seen it. There's, there's got, the most talented people are not always the best people to put on a team right. because they can cancer a team. They can, bring, they can bring 24 guys down at the time. We had 25 players in the big leagues but um, or on a baseball team. But my thing was if, if I can be the one that brings 24 guys up to a level that I'm not at but I know they're capable of getting to, mm-hmm. Then that makes our whole entire team better. Right. And the whole mindset of being on a team sport is to what is to win. Right. It's not about what can Josh Tomlin do to make Josh Tomlin better. Yes, I'm going to try to make myself better, but better to help that team. It's right. not about better so I can be. I'm the best pitcher on this team. I'm the best player on this team. That's never been the, the thought processes. And don't get me wrong, there's a load of those thought processes going around in professional sports, all around professional sports, not just baseball. But the thing about the thing about team sports, and I, I, think, I think Kobe Bryant said it one time or somebody, Magic Johnson, or I can't remember who it was, but um, they were saying if you want to be an individual player, if you want to do things on your own, be a ball hog or not, try to bring your guys up, go play tennis or go play golf or go play a sport right. that doesn't require a team. Right. Because that's, that's the truth. If you put on a jersey for an organization or for any kind of sports um, organization or you know, even like me and you starting this little podcast thing, like I want to do everything I can to help Jason Wright be the best Jason Wright, right? Improve always, in always, right? It's like I didn't, even, I didn't even <laughs> ask him to say that. No, he didn't. And I don't <laughs> think you've ever even told me that, but I just see it on, on your podcast and stuff. But that's the – that to me is what the mindset – a growth mindset, when you explain that to me, that's what a growth mindset means to me is how can I do better for myself to make the team better? Or what am I lacking to make myself better to help the team, right? Or there's, and I told you this today, like um, there's a minor, where in the minor leagues, right? There's guys that get drafted in the first round, they get a load of money, usually. Um, I wasn't that guy. I uh, I was drafted in the first round, but on the second day, the 19th round. This is back when they had 50 rounds, I think. Um, but so. A few years in the minor leagues, I'm watching this go down, and uh, some of our top prospects and um, you know guys they invest a lot of money in wouldn't play on a SpongeBob SquarePants day. In the minor <laughs> leagues, you play games at 10:30 sometimes uh, for schools, and what they do is they bring all the kids over there and they play SpongeBob SquarePants from 10:30 in the morning until the game is over with. <laughs> and you see a lot of these organizations, and it's not just the Indians that do it or the Guardians, whatever you want to call them, but you'll see their first rounder or their high, high level prospect guy not play. Never really thought much of it at the time, but the more, the higher up I got in the minor leagues, I started noticing this and I said, I understand why they're doing that now because they had this, st- this stuff invested in them. 
So they, they'll tell a guy, like, hey, you're not going to throw today, 10.30 game, push back. So that goes on enough, and I finally I, I see that. I'm like, just, just give, just, like we said, just give me the damn ball, I'll go pitch. I'll go pitch. Whether it's, you know, a good one, bad one, indifferent, rain and snow, who cares? Somebody's got to pitch. Right. Somebody's got to play these games. And then the higher up I went, when I got, finally got to business, I asked. And I asked that question. I said, why are you doing that? It's a disservice to them. It's a disservice to the players, the teammates that they're in. You're not building – you're not building the culture you represent in the big leagues if you can't start it at the minor league level. Right. And starting that at the minor league level is holding everybody to the same standard. It's not about, okay, Josh Tom was drafted in the first round, Jason Rod was drafted in the 50th. Who cares? Right. Now they're all in the same area. They're all in the same arena now, right? In that arena, we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to compete to try to do what? Win, yeah. period. I get the minor leagues is all about developing and all that kind of stuff. But if you watch what happened in the minor leagues when I was there, we won. We won. We got to the big leagues two, three years after that, we started winning. And we had one of the best records in baseball from 2013 to 2018 in all of baseball for that whole year. And it wasn't just because we got a new manager. All the coaches stayed the same. A few new uh, faces from free agency and things like that. But it was the core group of guys that we had in the minor leagues that came up together that stayed in Cleveland. We figured out how to win. Yeah. We figured out how to win there, too. We figured out how to win in the big leagues. So it was that slow progression, but it was also the same aspect of we finally had developed a culture that everybody bought into. And once everybody's buying into the same culture, no, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the Michael Brantley, the best player on our team, to – the, the guy that just got drafted out of the Dominican Summer League that has, you know, never been in America before, but he's over here at 17 years old doing everything he can to try to reach the same goal. He's held the same standard in our, in our eyes at the time. He was he- held to the same exact standards we were held to, yeah. and he demanded the same exact – we demanded that he had the same exact respect that we got. Yeah. It's, that's all there was to it because at the, at the end of the day, that's what it takes to build a true culture from the bottom to the top. And if you don't have that – when you get to the big leagues, when you're, when you're expected to show that culture, to, to, to live that culture, you can't. It's hard to. Right, right. You have to relearn it. Right. And that's, that wasn't what we wanted to do. We wanted to build a full culture from the ground up, and I thought we did a pretty good job of it, to be honest with you. There's so many things that you said there that are just – Yeah, I, yeah, I can get random, but I'm sorry. No, that there's just so much wisdom in that, Josh, that – okay, first of all, you got guys like Simon Sinek who are making millions of dollars – preaching culture in companies and culture is what will sustain culture will overcome money problems and and especially right now you're dealing with in the business world organizations are finding that and all all the research has shown that in business money is not the carrot everybody thought it was it is culture and purpose that, Mm -hmm. that really and that's what you've described another thing that's interesting that you mentioned because here's one of the things that sets you apart from a lot of other athletes You've been at this now over a decade in the majors. Yeah. All, all in, what, 14 years in, between minor and pros? Um, something like that? 16, 17 seasons, 15, 16 years. Dude, and an injury, okay, that, yes. you, that you overcame. So here's why I make that point. So I believe it was Carol Dweck in her book, Mindset, that brought up the difference between – no, 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 excuse me. It was Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz who wrote the book, uh, The Power of – the power of focus, it's something like that, so forgive me for not having the exact uh, title right I may there. have it in here somewhere. It's, it's fantastic because Jim Lair, you know, that's where he made his name, was basically a high-performance coach as far as teaching mindset and focus, and he started with tennis players. And he tried to figure out 
his whole deal was managing energy. He said it's all about like, and that's what this book is about. It's about like, it's not about managing time. Time management's not the problem. It's managing your energy so that you have the most energy at the right time to execute, right? right. Like for you to go out on the mound and know that, all right, I'm at my peak right now, so I've done all the things outside of this to be ready for this. Well, you've spent almost, you know, now going on your on two decades in baseball, which is a rarity to be in the bigs for 10. Jimmy Connors versus John McEnroe both play at the same time. McEnroe, who ha- was said to have more of a fixed mindset, not to harp on this so much, but it's just kind of fun to a- actually sit down here with a real case study, <laughs> a real-life version of the poster child for the growth mindset. He played till he was 36. It, the, the intensity, because he was defined, he defined himself all by how the wins and losses made John McEnroe look. Right. And in, in Jim Lair's book, he said Jimmy Connors, on the other hand, who started out very much like McEnroe, those two were incredibly competitive, both had tempers, uh, but Connors learned to relax and enjoy the sport. And even if he lost, he could at least have fun being a number one ranked tennis player. Whereas McEnroe, he ju- everything was about if I lose, then John McEnroe's a loser, and he just, it right. just it, and that's how. And so it's the same thing with what you said is that it wasn't just about Josh Tomlin and the your personal performance, the 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 walks or which which you have hard you hardly had yeah, any more walks, home runs than walks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't about walks hits. It was about what was Josh Tomlin doing to contribute to the team's effort? And that's another thing. And I just bring that up just so that people that are to understand this whole idea of a growth versus fixed mindset, a fixed mindset will judge. They, they believe themselves to be a failure just because of a loss as opposed to, eh, didn't quite do well enough today, but how did it impact the overall picture? And another thing you said that's interesting about fixed versus growth mindset people and and i didn't set you up for any of this which is why i'm no no i'm a geek i read this stuff i study it and then to hear somebody just repeat the real life version of it, it's like oh that's cool <laughs> so a growth mindset uh individual will game everything they will be like they will turn things into a game like in research if you take two young people one that has been told their whole life you're brilliant, you're smart. Then they get put at the gifted and talented table. So now they're smart, so they've been treated differently. As they get older, they will hit some point where if you put that person into a room with Josh Tomlin and you try to get them to compete on a certain deal, the one that was the gifted and talented has always been told that they were smart, that has always been at the smart table, they will choose the easiest task they can find so as not to disrupt the image that they are smart. Whereas... Josh Tomlin will go and say, give me the hard one. That might be fun. Yeah. And if I fail, oh, crap, let me do it again. Yeah. The other, trying. if they do get the hard one and they fail, will be like, oh, my God, I'm not smart anymore. What, what happened? My whole image of myself has been shattered. So and yet, that's just how you describe that whole yeah. thing, dude. That, that's competing, though, <laughs> yeah. right? Isn't yeah. that the whole mindset of competing and the growth mindset, the fixed mindset? Like, like I've never understood, and I, I may have – you got this all wrong. I may have been a fixed mindset at some point in my life. I don't know how it would be. I, I don't think so. Dude. I just honestly, God, I think that the most fun thing to do in sports is a competition aspect of it. And you can ask anybody that's ever played with me. If <laughs> any team might have mind, if you show me something, if you show me a game 
you give me a chance to learn it, I will tell them I will beat your ass in it next time we play. <laughs> awesome. And it's not that I know I'm going to do it. I just want that. I want to make myself. I'm hyping myself up to go. Let's go. Let's play. And then once we do play, I'm going to do everything I can to beat you. And I hope you do the same to me because that to me is where you grow. That's where teams grow. That's where businesses grow. That's, and it's not competing to try to make you feel like you're a failure. It's competing to try to get you on a different level of that you've never even known you've had maybe. Awesome. And that, that's the whole aspect of it is like, hey, cards, let's go. Let's play. I want to beat you. I'm going to do everything in my power to beat you. I can't tell you how many card tables have been flipped in front of my lab or <laughs> I flipped them or just, just a whole like – and I think that's where baseball is a little bit different because we spend every waking moment with each other. Yeah. From the time we wake up, we go to the field, to the time we go home. We know our teammates better than we know our family half the time. And that's, yeah. no, that's, no, that's not an exaggeration by any means. Yeah. Um, but I think I told you this the other day, if you really wanted to fix all the world's problems, put people, put all the, all the leaders in the world, put them in a major league baseball clubhouse and watch them work. Yeah. Just watch. Yeah. Don't talk. Don't do anything. Just watch. Because yeah. nobody's getting sensitive about stuff. Nobody's canceling anybody. Nobody's shutting anybody out. Nobody's putting anybody on an island. If you're doing something that nobody agrees with, they go up and talk to you about it. Yeah. Discreetly talk to you about it, and then you walk away. That, to me, is what a family, what a culture, what that is actually built off of, or, or what wins are built off of. It's, it's the whole mindset of, hey, I see Michael Brantler. I see this guy over here screwing up at late at night. I'm going to go talk to him. Yeah. And we're going to then have a conversation about, hey, Mike, you were not – putting yourself in the best possible situation to be successful. And Michael Brantley is not doing anything wrong with that. Don't, don't, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if that's what was going on, you go have that conversation with somebody discreetly, try to nip it in the bud, and then you move forward. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's what we did in, that, uh, in baseball. And that's what baseball has to do because you do spend so much freaking time with each other. It's nonstop. Yeah. And I think that I got to believe that just building the trust. And that's why I see these pro athletes that now – that they take their big stand for whatever cause, whatever the, the, the issue is of the day. And in my opinion, for whatever it's worth, kind of what you're saying is that it's not that they're wrong for doing that. I mean, they should, Hey, I've got a platform, but just to be mindful of what that can do, because you're basically dragging all these other guys, all your teammates yeah. into your issue because the media and the way the world works, but oh, do you agree with LeBron? Right. Do you agree with what you know, right. whoever said? And it's just, it's really maddening. And and yeah, I got to believe in the clubhouse. It's and that's one of the things I thought was really cool that you told me a while back. Because you know, one day I hope to see you coaching a professional mm -hmm. baseball team. Is that you? You enjoy being in the clubhouse because you still there is that we can still be real with each other. Right. It's not about again. My feelings are not more important than this team's success. Absolutely not. Yeah, and you can have that one-on-one, peer-to-peer, you know, interaction with right. your your boys. Whereas, once you're the manager, then and you're or you're in the front office, everything changes, right? Yeah, that's I mean, exactly. Right. And it's like every baseball player has their their family, their own life away from the field, right? And so when things go wrong. They have to have somebody lean on. And it goes back to culture. And I'm probably going to say culture more than you say World Series. But that's okay, too. I, I truly believe in what culture represents and what it does to businesses, what it does to people, what it does to organizations, sports, any of it. I truly believe that. Um, because there's, there's a lot of things that go on outside of baseball that can affect your everyday life. Everyday coming in, being in a bad mood, things like that. People need to vent. They have to build a vent. Yeah. And if they're not – 
if they can't come to the field and trust their teammates to vent to them without their teammates saying, I don't agree with you, I'm done with you. Yeah, yeah. How would you feel going through a clubhouse every single day like that? You're not going to get the best out of that player yeah. or that, that human being for that matter. You're not going to get the best heart out of him. You're not going to get the be best brain out of him, best, be best thoughts out of him or his actions, right? They, they just – they crumble or they just fall into this little – not depression, but they fall into a dark spot to where – they don't trust anything they can do because they're afraid of what the outcome might be or what they may be perceived as right. because of something that went on away from the field. Well, baseball players don't judge. They, they can't judge, right? Because you're stuck in that damn, you're stuck in that locker room with them. Right. So you learn to like them or you learn to deal with them yeah. one or the other. And then what good leadership does or what good culture does is I, I see Jason over there. He's struggling. He's, he's, MFing everybody because he's pissed off. I'm going to go there and talk to him, and I know Jason's not going to fight me. Or if he does fight me, we're going to get up and I'm shaking each other's hands, yeah. one or the other. But what I see is he's, he's struggling with something. He's struggling with some kind of demon or he's struggling with something off, of, off the field. I'm going to talk to him. Yeah. And then we can nip in the bud. We can go from there. We can, we can talk about it, be real, be humans, and be men, and then move forward. Because that's what's lacking nowadays. Nobody talks. Nobody wants to be a man and say manly things because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. Right. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in a major league clubhouse. It, it, not in all the years I've been playing. Yeah. If you have a problem with somebody, you go talk to them and you deal with it. Period. Yeah. Done. God, what a, what a crazy concept to be able to just speak freely to yeah. people and realize that, hey, <laughs> I'm not here to hurt you. I'm just trying to be honest with you. I, right. That's what right. I would want for somebody to do to me. Absolutely. All right. So now let's talk a little bit about just – all right. And you say as much as you want to or can or whatever. I mean, I know you can say whatever the hell you want, but I don't want to drag up anything. Let's just start here. So basically, an, I mean, I told Jimlin after you and I were talking the other day, I was like, you know, the thing about hanging out with Josh, he's a freaking pitcher, okay? You're not an NFL linebacker, but still you're like a cyborg. I mean, dude, you're like in peak physical <laughs> condition. You're just, it, it, you're just different. I mean, there's something about a professional athlete. Your body is the greatest you know, weapon you have against an opposing team, right? So it's, right. it's just kind of amazing just being in the presence of a, of a professional athlete that's been at it as long as you. Um, so what's it going to be like? And I know you're a free agent right now, and I know that you've got some big decisions to make because you got, yes. you got some kiddos, you know, there to think about. And like, you, like we've talked about offline, I, mean, I, I went through it as in business. What I know what traveling does and – Good Lord, I never had anything like what you what you had to endure as a as a professional athlete. But what do you what do you do to maintain some sense of level headedness when to keep yourself physically fit when there isn't a game for the next thirty days? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what's the routine? Or potentially like? six more months. Who yeah. knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> not, 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 yeah. So, what is the uh, like? How? What is that like? Do you do you ever find yourself sitting around going? All right, I gotta go throw. I, I, I gotta be doing. I gotta. I gotta go. Oh God, Jason, I, I don't mind. For me, is is abs is the worst. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather used to always tell me, I don't mind. It's the devil's workshop, and I believe that. I truly believe that. Oh my good lord. Um, and I and I think the reason why that is is because of how I was raised. For one, we didn't come from anything. Um, my mom and dad worked their tails off nonstop to give me whatever I wanted, whatever I needed. Um, both actually. But I've never, I never watched my dad just go, 
you know what, I'm going to take a week off, just take a week off and relax. It wasn't like that. It was like, what can I do to better my family? I got to do something. My mom the same way. I have to do something to provide for my family to make, to make ends meet. And that's exactly how I was. My mom and dad made me get a job when I was 15 years old. Before then, I had to work with my dad. But I've always had to work for anything I've ever wanted. Had to work for it. That didn't change when sports happened. Sports, probably more, actually. Um, <clears throat> but it was, I mean, I sit around now, and when I get home from the season, I sit around for about two weeks, and those two weeks are probably the most miserable two weeks. My mom, Carly will tell you, she, like, I'm, I, after two weeks, I told Josh he needs to go. He needs to get back on the road because yeah. I'm just miserable. I'm getting, out of the, I'm getting out of the everyday mindset of competing to now I'm a dad. Yeah. And during this whole pandemic when they had these, you know, two plus two equals 20, they were, they, you could, your wife and family couldn't come see you because of COVID, but they could stay in the same hotel room with you, whatever, whatever, whatever all that was. I didn't see my family for four months. And don't get me wrong, that's not anything compared to what people have to go through on a daily basis. I get it, but I still miss my family sure. big time. And then I come home and I have to be a full-fledged dad, a full-time dad for those two weeks. And I'm not a very good dad, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a very good dad in those two weeks. Um, not a very good husband. I, I'm on the same program as my as uh, baseball, right? So I wake up, I'm like, okay, I got to go to the field at one. No, I don't. What am I going to do? I sit around, I go out in the yard. Or I go outside and I go be by myself because I was by myself for so long, right? I go in my little independent space, by my solo space, and I just go do things. And I slowly get out of that and become a dad. I spend time with my kids, spend time with my wife. And my wife understands the whole transition phase, and she's, been, she's great with it. Um, she probably wants to wring my neck half the time, and I get that. I don't, I don't blame her for it. Um, and let's but, be real. Carly could kick both of our asses. Oh, no doubt about it. To. No doubt about it. She put <laughs> no here right now and kick both of our asses. And she's in sweats. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's be real no. about Carly. <laughs> and if she doesn't physical press, she'll give us a good tongue laugh. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but so I will find myself now. I'll be sitting around. I'll, I'll go, you know, work out, come, go throw be sitting around and I'll, I'll think to myself, I need to, I need to sit down and relax and go, go hang out with Ace. Kid, the girls are at school. Let's go sit down with Ace, go play with Ace. Um, but that goes by, he goes and takes a nap and I'm sitting here, I'm going, okay, what do I need to do? I need to do something. And I need to be, you know, either, you know, writing down with the stuff that you told me to write down or things like that. But instead I, I, I started, my mind drifts off to something else. And right now my mind's drifting off with the decisions you're trying to, you, you were just, you know, implying was, sure. do I retire? Do I keep playing? Do I take another job in the coaching role? There's, there's multiple avenues I could go at this point, right? And I don't know any of them right now. I really, honestly, I don't. I, I told you this the other day. I think Joy I got Texas a little. Titan Media. That, that's that's going to happen regardless. Yeah, that's, that's, that's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> that's, what I'm, that's what I'm voting for. Yeah, but. I agree with that, too. I think that's going to happen no matter what. Um, but I think I told you this the other day when I mentioned going back to play, my girls yeah. flip, they don't flip. They're just like, no, no. And still to this day, if I, if the girls are sleeping, I wake up early in the morning, I go do something. I go give them donuts and they wake up and dad's not there. They're like, that's mom. Where's dad? Oh, he went to get donuts. Is he coming back? Yeah, he's coming back. Love, he's coming back. He just went to get donuts. He's coming right back. Did he go to baseball? No, he hasn't gone to baseball yet. And that's the kind of thing that. I check myself every morning. I, I make sure I'm doing the right things that it's no different than the clubhouse. This is my clubhouse now. So my actions are going to impact the other four of my family. Yeah. 
So my actions are actually, my thoughts are actually about the other four. What they, what's best for them. What's best for, is the best for them to have their dad around? Is it best for their dad to go play so that they can, um, you know, have the things they want to have or, you know, set them up for a little bit better in the future, whatever the case may be. But I don't play, I'm not playing the game for money. I'm playing the game because I enjoy playing the game. I enjoy the game because I have passion for the game. Right. And if that passion turns into work again, or it turns into uh, I'm miserable or I'm constantly missing my family, then that's whenever I'm, that's, that's when this is, these thoughts start keeping my head of like, okay, it's time. Yeah. It's time for me to give it up. Um, time for me to turn the page, go do something else. And that right there is, and I told you this, what, yesterday? I, this last week, I went to like a little dark place because, for one, these negotiations that are going on are absolutely absurd. And two, my, the end for me is near for baseball. I get that. I completely get that. I've been doing this, playing baseball for 33 years, 34 years of my life. To say baseball won't be a part of my life anymore, that's what is a gut-wrencher for me. Well, and that's, I want to talk about that in a minute, Josh, because this is one of the things that for some reason it had never occurred to me to like – probably because I got past it. I realized – so when you're 20, you think 37 is old. And, and, whenever, and then whenever you become around 37, like in the business world, whenever I was still in my 30s, guys that were my age – and in, in their 50s would be like, that's the, that's the how old are you in 37? They're like, oh, God, you're so young. I'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm not right. young. But then when you get my age, I'm 47, and I look at a guy like you that's 37, dude, you're a baby, and you're at the the twilight years of your career. I mean, how do you process, holy crap, you know? Um, I'm, old, I'm not even 40. I'm and not old, but I'm old in baseball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you're so freaking young. That's got and, and also the crazy thing about your 30s that you must be dealing with. I mean, Tom Brady took it till he was 43. Mm-hmm. The when you're in your 30s, you still feel physically like you can do the things you were in your 20s, and you're still doing them. Mm-hmm. You just know that the next time you go out there and you throw a pitch, it, your elbow could go like, "Hey, dude, yeah. you're 38 years old now. You're 39 years old." Mm-hmm. So. I mean, well, that's, I make that analogy all the time. Like I, we, we talked about this other day at the, at the uh, APEC is I used to be able to roll out of bed and go play catch. Yeah. Now I feel like it takes me 15, I say 15 minutes, 30, 45 minutes to go play catch. Yeah. Um, especially days I'm throwing a bullpen. And I still throw bullpens twice a week. Still this day, throw one tomorrow. And I look forward to it. I, I absolutely look forward to throwing bullpens, especially because we have to face hitters on Tuesdays and Fridays uh, now. But you're right. You're exactly right. Whenever you're 37 years old, even even in your mid-30s and low-30s in baseball, you, you you wake up and it's not the same when you're 20. Yeah. <laughs> you're 22 years old. It's not the same. You don't wake up and you're like, hmm, boom, I can go play. Right. You know, it's not like that anymore. It's, you get up and you're like, you, you, my legs still there? They yeah. work, they work it. My toes moving. My hands. Look at my elbow. Yep. Yeah. Oh, shoulder. Okay. You have these checkpoints, right? You get out of bed. It's not. You don't just hop out of bed anymore. You hop out. You. Okay. My foot's not asleep. My legs aren't asleep. <laughs> right, I'm good. I can get up. Like that's the kind of. That's the kind of stuff that I struggle with more than anything else. And it's. I think it's just more of an in, internal battle of. I don't want anybody to know I'm doing this because I don't want that 22-year-old to think that he has a, a, an edge on me or yeah. that, that 19-year-old to think he has an edge on me, especially at the gym working out. I've always thought that way. But 
Um, it is like Tom Brady. Do what Tom Brady did to come from what Tom Brady came from to make that is freaking absurd. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love that, and I love the fact that his um, uh, was it E sixty or that thing on Sports Center, the the Man in the Arena. I love yeah. it's called yeah. Man in the Arena. Yeah. That is so sick to me. Yeah. Because yeah. he is. Yeah. He is the epitome of what that quote, that Theodore Roosevelt quote is about, yeah. in my Absolutely. opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Critics are not pulling accounts. It's so sick. That's, well, that's, and that's what I'm going to be – I'm going to remind you of that as we work together after your career to go, hey, brother, don't get too hard on yourself. You were in the freaking arena for, mm-hmm. for a long time, and not many people were even willing to step into it. And, you're, and the bottom line is you're just going to step into a new arena. That's and right. That's everywhere right. Everywhere you go, you're a fighter, and there's going to be an arena for you. And I think that's one of the things that's cool for, like, listeners to hear is i mean dude okay the average individual out there that is working a job as a cpa a lawyer a doctor uh, a, a fedex driver whatever they go man okay you're 37 years old you know you're financially secure you got a beautiful family that must be unbelievable but i guess it's all relative right it, I mean, yes right, right. I mean, yeah it's like people I, I see it all the time twitter warriors keyboard warriors always talk about um you know, oh, but they're making millions of dollars. Well, yeah, but the people, especially baseball players, they do make millions of dollars. Some of them do. Granted, not not everybody's making $10 million a year. Right. Let's be real honest right there. There's not everybody's making that money. But you build a lifestyle because of the gains that you make. The, the, the monetary gains as you play more and more and more, you build a different lifestyle. Yeah. And you, you start going, okay, I want – I want that F-250. Right. I'm going to go get it. Right. You know, I want my, my, my baby girl to have those shoes, or I want my wife to drive a nice car because I don't want to have to worry about her doing this, or I want to live in a nice house. I want to have space. I, I worked my ass off to get this. I want this now. Right. So I go, I go and get it, or not me personally, but this is the mindset that some of these professional athletes have, and they build a lifestyle. Some of them build an unsustainable lifestyle, right? Unsustainable lifestyle, and that's, that's on them. But – once you get to that, once you get to that lifestyle that you create this comfort for you and your family, that's the mind, that's where you want to go, right? Well, that's not all like it's not it's all relative in a sense of yet you look from the outside and you say, man, that dude, he's 37 years old. If I retire, he's 37 years old and he's you know played 12, 13 years in the big leagues and he gets to go home and do nothing. Ah, bullshit. <laughs> you know, no way. Right. If you go home and you. Do nothing to me that, that, for one, you lose your edge. Two, you lose that longevity, what we're talking about. Like, yep. you're doing those hangs the other day. Yep. You're from 70 seconds to 140. Like, yeah. that, I won't be able to go from 70 seconds to 71 seconds if I sit around and do nothing. Yeah. And I can't, I can't deal with that. I can't deal with, I can't deal with laziness, and I can't deal with lazy people. I, right. I don't, I can't, well, I'm not sure if I can say I hate, but I do. I, I don't like lazy people that want to do absolutely nothing and just hope that somebody comes around and can save them from whatever they're dealing with and pick them up and say, hey, I'll carry you to where you want to get to. I can't stand that. I would like to be the one to carry you, but I want you to put in some sweat equity as well. Do something to let me help you carry out of that. Like it's the the relevance, like you said, it's, you know, once you start doing something and you retire from it, like you said, I've been doing it for 34 years now, professionally 17, 16, 17 years. And I'm done. If say when I retire, I'm done, done. I I will never knowing that I will never go play pitch in a game again on a major league stadium, feeling that adrenaline, that that rush of doing that, 
I have to channel that adrenaline into something else. If I don't, I'm always going to be chasing something else, and that's whenever bad things could happen in yeah, my opinion. Yeah. So do you think you'll still be a fan of the game? Will you just, I do. Will you I do. watch? Yes. Yeah. I, I probably won't miss the game, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. That, I think that's what a podcast could be because uh, let's be real honest. Announcers out there nowadays in baseball, they're atrocious. They're absolutely atrocious, and <laughs> I'll say that. I'm, I'm employed by them. <laughs> right. They're atrocious. Um, but if you do something like a Manning cast and you can actually talk freely about yeah. this and actually talk educated about this because you actually do understand what's going on, I think that would be a big hit to the fans, and fans can let you know right now if they think that would be um, beneficial to the game or not. But um, true I, baseball like, let's, fans. Let's do that. I thought it's funny you said it. I was yeah. going to say that. So anybody watching, anybody listening, Josh and I, and this is just me pushing my friend, my brother into what I think he is made to do. I want you to start a podcast. I don't care if it's on, uh, or whatever. And so if you're listening, what would you like out of a veteran professional athlete? What could you learn from Josh and I mean, one of the things we talked about is just the, the actual business of baseball. Now, mm. and, and, you, and again, you can either say, you know, that's a strike or a ball, whatever, or, or a hit pitch, uh, whatever. If I ask you this question, can you describe to this audience kind of what the hell is going on with <laughs> the, the negotiations and what, what's happening? Uh, it's, I can describe it to a T. I can describe it to what I know is going on. Okay. Um, and – it's not greed. It's not one side trying to win. And to put it very vaguely, but I will tell you pretty good specifics of what is actually going on, the vagueness of it is players want teams to put their best foot forward at all times, period. They owe fans that. They owe Major League Baseball that. And they owe their players that. Let's be real honest. And I, I don't want to name any team names, but there's going to be multiple team teams out there that have a lower payroll than Max Scherzer, one-year deal. Lower payrolls than Max Scherzer's deal right. for one year. He signed a three-year deal. But that, that, to me, is where baseball has messed up. And you put together a group of billionaires, 30 billionaires, and you give them a system, they start hiring Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Ivy League guys that work in their front office they will find loopholes to make themselves better, period. We all have that same, that same, like, if you see something that you can take a shortcut and get more out of your player, Super 2. I have a lot to talk about it. Super 2. If a guy has two years and 100 and something days, 22% of them qualify for a call Super 2, where you get to free agency a little bit quicker than or not free agency, arbitration a little bit quicker than three years. So that – and usually it takes three years. So in my case, I got called up on July 27th of 2010. And so I only had 80, roughly 80, 60-something days, whatever it was. So I didn't qualify for Super 2, and I was in the big leagues the next two years. So I had two, two years and 60-something days. Well, I wasn't in the cut of Super 2. I had to play a full another year. So now I'm at three and 63, 83, whatever, whatever the number was. We're a hundred and something. So now I'm, I'm almost I'm four seasons into a major league career, and I'm under control with the same minimum salary those all four years. Well, I should have been in arbitration, in my opinion, after two and 80-something days. I wasn't. 
So now what you do is you take that and you go, okay, now he's got to play three more years in arbitration. So now I've gotten six full years out of him and half or a little over half, seven of seventh year. Well, free agency is in six years. So they figured out a way. They figured out a date. Chris Bryant, for instance, they figured out that May 8th or May 9th or something like that. They call the guy up and they say he had to work on his defense. The dude won rookie of the year. No, they didn't. No, he didn't. He was the best player on your team. And he would have been the best player on your team from the opening day, period, period. But you didn't want to have to pay him in three years and lose him in six. You wanted him to get the most out of that season that year and then have him for six more years after that. So there's a loophole in that system. And I get it. If I was an owner or a GM or whatever, I would probably do the same thing. Right. I'm getting more value out of that guy for the, more, the longevity I have him. That's all there is to it. Well, players want that in return on – Competitive balance tax or competitive balance threshold, whatever you want to call it. Um, we're trying to set forth penalties for teams that are tanking. Teams want to, and I say want to lose. Teams are losing at a historic rate per year to try to gain draft picks in the draft. Mm. Why, are you, why are you allowing the worst team in baseball to get the number one pick? Because of competitive balance right you want them to get the best so maybe they, well baseball's not built like nfl nba they're not built they don't they don't draft a guy and go boom he's in the big leagues period it doesn't happen right there's not too many that happen that way right. they go through a the progression much longer process. much longer right. process and not all first rounders pan out i'm yeah. sorry but they don't yeah but there's a system in place right that well we get this draft pick we get these these draft picks and we're still going to be bad the next couple of years because we're not going to go out and sign people we're going to have, you know, 25 guys that are making league minimum and have a $20 million payroll and then get the first pick in the draft the next year. And then when we want to go in, we'll start paying the money. Well, then we'll do it for two or three years and we'll just go, well, strip them. Yeah. Well, for one, you're messing with people's livelihood. They're messing with their whole family. They're messing with everything when that comes to that. Then I get it's a business. Players can adjust to that. And players, that's, players aren't worried about that. But teams aren't either, right? And – if you, want, if you put as much value into how a human being reacts to certain things as you do the performance aspect of it or your business model of it, you might actually get something more out of your players. You might actually have guys wanting to come there even though you don't pay as much, right? You might have a guy that wants to go play for the Cleveland Indians for six million a year as opposed to the 10 million he's getting from the Chicago Cubs. Yeah, because I was going to ask what? you about that if that ever happens. Right. right. I mean, it goes back to that culture thing you're talking right. about. Right. I would. Yeah. I would. I mean, what's four, mo four more million dollars? Like, I, I get it. It's a lot of money. I'm not saying that by any means, but yeah. I'm not willing to go chase dollars for my happiness. I'm not. Yeah. I never will. Yeah. I would rather go somewhere that I feel loved. I feel like I love uh, people, my teammates, and my organization so that I get the best out of them and they get the best out of me. If they don't, if I go somewhere and I'm absolutely miserable, I'm probably not going to be picking up the 24 other guys and trying to bring them to a level that I think they're capable of or I think that team needs to get to to try to go win. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to sit on my ass in front of my chair and do nothing and not speak a word to anybody until it's time to go play. Right. And that is a miserable, miserable way to live, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you also get on the, on the flip side of, hey, why would I want to go play for that team, you know, Team X, if they're not going to put the money in to go win? Yeah. And then once they go, okay, we're going to put the money together. I want you. <laughs> Tough shit. Right. If players took that approach, it might change what's going on right now. Yeah. yeah. You know, but some players don't. They don't care about that. They just want to go. I'm going to go get the top dollar. 
yeah. I'm gonna get the top dollar. And by, rightfully so, you've earned the right to get the top dollar. You've earned the right to go make yourself a healthy living, and you know, go go, you know, try to set your future generations up for for years to come. You know, and I and I get that, and I, I respect that. This is not how I, I'd rather have happiness than than money. I can I can figure. I have hands. I have feet. They all work right. I can go make money if I need to. Do you know that? Every, and I've I've read this exact same study. I don't know when the last time it was updated. But, and I think it was. I don't know if it was a global. Well, it couldn't have been a global. It, was, it had to have been at least industrialized nations. So let's just keep it. I know it was for sure in America. Do you realize that once someone makes this is going to blow your mind. Once someone makes $75,000 a year, that's the magic number. Uh, uh, the me- it has a median income of $75,000. That the difference in their happiness after making $75,999 is so small from mm-hmm. there. Because the reason why is because that, that kind of like right now, of course, with inflation going on, that, may, that study might change. Uh, but it's basically... If you once you have your basic needs met, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once you have your basic needs met, money plays such a small piece or, or, or part of your actual happiness. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you just said. It's like no I doubt. mean, it's like well, you can go do more stuff, mm-hmm. but you know the buy more things. But yeah. I've never seen a I've never seen a hearse with a luggage rack. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm, no, I mean, not to be morbid there, but I mean, I'd rather my I'd rather have fun with my kids, right? Yeah. I'd rather go. I'd rather go do things or 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 set something up out here and go play and, and enjoy my time with them. Yeah. Than I would enjoy the monetary uh, aspects of what professional baseball could bring you. But um, yeah, I mean that's basically it with the with the whole like lockout thing. And um, you know the owners chose to lock us out. By the way, this was not a mandatory thing by any means. This was not anything that was forced on them. It was. They chose to do this because of negotiation tactics, and then they end up calling somebody else to come in to try to help mediate those um, good faith negotiations. Well, eh, no, yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. You didn't even talk to anybody for months. Yeah. You know, you wanted to lock us out, so it came. It became a. Um, it became a. An issue to where okay, we we can get something done quicker if we do this. It's a negotiation tactic. Well. Tactic my ass. Yeah. You didn't even do anything to try to create that, to try to use that tactic, you know, to your advantage. It wasn't advantageous to you at all because, as a matter of fact, it probably hurt you worse because you didn't even talk to us during that time. Right. You know, and that's, that's, that's just, in my opinion, there's no good faith in any of it right now. Not just, not just the MLB owners, but in players as well. Like, like, I say players as well. Players are trying to do their best to try to get the integrity of baseball back to the top. And I say top, meaning it's not a boys and girls club anymore at the top with the owners. It's, it's, it's a, you should want to kick the shit out. If I'm the Clevelandians, I should want to kick the shit out of um, um, the Kansas City Royals, even if Mr. Sherman is my best friend, the owner right. of the, the Royals. If I'm Mr. Dolan and Mr. Sherman, well, I don't want to go to dinner with you every single night. Like right. you might be my friend every now and again, but or we may go have a dinner and talk about something. But once we're away, I want to go sign that free agent over you because I want to show you I want to I want to beat you. Yeah. It, but it's not like that anymore. It's a boys and girls club now, oh, yeah. and that's that to me is it's it's kind of hurting the game a little bit from the financial standpoint of it or the integrity of the competition part of it, and that's where I think the game has kind of started slowly declining. Is 
for one, you, you have a bunch of billionaires fighting with a bunch of millionaires. Not one fan out there is going to look at this in light and say, oh, I get it. I understand why they're doing that. Right. Right. And MLB hires people in the media to go tweet this stuff out about, you know, Max Scherzer showing up in a Porsche. Uh, who cares? Right. The billionaires are show, billionaire owners are showing up on private jets. Who cares what Max Scherzer is driving in? Right. Stop. Right. Like, for one, and there was another one that I saw of somebody holding the phone up, but you can't do anything anymore without somebody videoing you. But Max Scherzer's talking to Tony Clark. And he's very animated when he's talking to him. It's because he has passion for what he's talking about right now. And they, they spin it into Max Scherzer's not very happy talking to Tony Clark. Like, either he's mad at Tony Clark or either that or he's upset with MLB. Like, no one knows. But they just spin it as he's upset talking to Tony Clark. Yeah. When it could just be him being very animated while he's talking to Tony Clark. Right. It could be absolutely nothing to it. But, and for one, why the, why the hell is he even being videoed outside of the hotel room, wherever they were, in Jupiter, Florida? Why the hell is it someone, a reporter behind the tree doing, What? Well, that's one of the things that's so weird in this day and age. I mean, I know, like, just whenever we were in Colorado hanging out with you before the game, I know that everybody around is like – it's almost like uh, – we talked about this, how everybody's constantly got their phone. And, like, I mean, people are probably like going, wondering who I am just because I get to go down and talk to you. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, do we need to – you know, it's like – it's so – it's got to be so weird. And I guess it's probably changed since you got in the league, right? Oh, big time. I mean – Big time. It's you could go you could go do whatever you wanted to do and not have and I don't mean that in a bad way, but like if you wanted to go have a beer at a bar. What did I do with my water? I don't know. Oh sorry. So, oh here, I got it. You got it? Okay. All right, go Move all these chairs around. We gotta we hit them. <laughs> we rearranged furniture before we started. And we had to. But yeah, you used to be able to go and do what you wanted to do. And yeah. not have to worry about somebody just filming the whole damn thing. Right. Like if I wanted to go have a beer, I could have a beer. Right. And then that was it. Right. And there wasn't anything. Other than going to have a beer, talking to my buddies, and going back home. Well, even whenever you just came and saw me in Colorado, you came down the field. Like, it seemed like everybody had their phone out hoping something happened. Right. You know, hoping to catch me doing something wrong yeah. or Jason doing something wrong right. so that we can ch- try to become a social media sensation right. overnight. Right. And that, to me, like, I, I don't know, man. That, that, that's just – it's irritating and it's, it's frustrating and it's I, – I don't know, man. I, that, that, to me, is not – I don't know. It's it's sad. It's yeah. sad to me because people can't. Social media is all a facade. Yeah. yeah. Oh, me. absolutely. It's, none of it is completely real. It's none of it is, in my opinion. It's it's just if I spent all my time looking at Instagram or Twitter, looking at what other people are doing, what other people are saying, what other people are trying to accomplish, I would never accomplish what I'm trying to get. Because I look at that and I say, "What the hell? I'm not being able to do that. I can't do that. Why?" So I got it. I'm reading a book right now. I'm going to get you a copy of this. It's awesome. It's called Hero on a Mission. It was given called Stone Chiseler. Uh, no, well that oh. the Stone Chiseler <laughs> that was going to be a fantastic so book. Sick. That that was that's that's a good one. But that's I'm actually plugging somebody else's book. And by the way, my guitar instructor Tim Woosley. Here's a shout out for him. Enjoy playing guitar. If you want to learn how to play guitar, go enjoy Very playing guitar. Um, he gave me the book Hero on a Mission by Don Miller. And one of the things I, I, I made note of this because I used to be this guy at times in my life whenever I was in a dark spot where I was like, before I started just do really getting creating and before Jimlin came along in my life, I was like, what? I mean, I'm hitting the middle age. The girls are nearly grown. What am I going to do? 
And he said a lot of the reason why people stay on social media so long is that they're watching other people live their perceived adventure instead of having an adventure of their own. You know, and so Pete, you need to, and I would tell the listener and to the YouTube listener, go have an adventure. Because if you find your adventure, you're not going to give a damn about anybody else's adventure. No, you probably want to get rid of your phone. Yeah. You want to get rid of it all. Exactly. Just go have your adventure. And all right, so now let's talk about, before we wrap this up, I want some just some fun stuff that only you could tell me that no one else I'll ever interview with. So, all right. You love competition, so over your entire career, dude, who was the hitter that was the who was the best hitter that you were gonna have to face, and kind of what were you thinking when they were coming out? And who was that when it was gonna be like, all right, this dude is just, I'm gonna have to really. <laughs> well, this isn't gonna be a name that people write. Okay, for one, Miguel Cabrera, hands down, best hitter I've ever faced. Okay. And, but see, that's what's cool. That I could, so who, well, Miguel Cabrera, you know, I mean, but he was, he's a freak, dude. He's an absolute freak. But he's he's one of the he's one of the guys. Like if you watch him, if you're if you're playing, if you're competing against Miguel Cabrera, Miguel Cabrera, for one, you love it. For it's 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 there's nothing else like it because he can take a, and I've watched him do it. Take a 98 mile fastball down away, hit it out the right field. Take a. Uh, you know, a, a bastard two-seamer coming in on his hands, take it out to left field, and then take a hand curveball, hit it to center, like, or a good curveball in the dirt, and he goes, you know what, I'm going to check swing and just flare <laughs> one over the right, just get my base hit. <laughs> but I remember um, in in Detroit, the first base dugout is our dugout, and it's a visiting dugout, and he'd be over there, and he'd, he'd or whistle at you. He's talking to me, or he's talking to other Latins over here, like, what, are, they, are they talking shit about me, or what are they, what are they doing right now? And he's laughing and he's looking at me and I'm like, what the hell? So I'm like, me? Yeah, you. It's funny. Front hip cutter. You're going back to my sinker. You're curveball, curveball, curveball cutter. I'm like, what? The exact sequences I've done to him. I'm going, what the? I looked at Michael Brent. I said, hey, does he have my shit? Is he doing what I'm throwing him? What? He's like, no, dude, he's getting in your head. I said, well, he's in it. Tell him to get out of it. <laughs> and I was telling the Latin guy, I was like, hey, tell him in Spanish to get out of my head. Dude. I was like, tell him I'm going to hit him in the ribs. And he's like, oh, you hit me? Who cares? Like, about this. You're so slow. You're so slow. I was like, damn it. So at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to start making stuff up when I face him. And um, I remember I went up there, and he popped the ball up. And I got him out, and I was like, damn, I, I threw a good fastball up right there. I was like, no, it was right in the middle. It popped him up. And I remember Michael Bradley coming in and said, that's how he has to pitch me in the middle. Make him choose to hit the ball to right foot or left field. I said, here, dude. You know what? You go take the ball, and you go throw Miguel Cabrera down the middle, <laughs> and you go see what happens. Over time, I guarantee he beats me. He goes, just trust me on that. He goes, hell, you haven't got him out in. You haven't got him out of way. Why, why the hell not? Try down the middle. And I was like, all right, I'll try it. And then as soon as I get the ball and I get there, Miguel Cabrera's coming up me out second, third. I'm like, I'm not. Throwing him a fastball down the middle. I'm not going to do it. So then I go to that bastard cutter down the way, and he goes, whack, and he hits it out the right center field for a double. And I was like, son of a bitch. I should have just threw it down the middle and see what happened. But it was crazy because, like, that's – people are going to laugh at me when I say this, but really, really good hitters that hit for average and for power like he does, he's going to go down as arguably the greatest hitter that ever walked the planet, in my opinion. Um it's not an opinion. You go ask people that have ever played so against good. him. He's he's the best. So um, they you they say make them make a decision of where to hit the ball. I like that. I, 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 I never thought of it like that at the time. Yeah. And so Michael Brantley is one of the better all-time greatest contact hitters that I've, maybe has ever played the game. And, and in my opinion, 
maybe it's because one of my best friends in the entire world. He is the best baseball player in, inside and out I've ever seen, ever been a part of, ever been around. Uh, it's been a true honor and pleasure to be, be able to play with him for so long. But when he told me that, I said, so if I pitch you down the middle, he said, no, 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 I ain't going to make that mistake. I'll hit that son of a bitch right back at your forehead. I was like, <laughs> all right. I, I get that. I understand that because he wasn't trying to hit the long ball at times. Like Miguel Cabrera is trying to hit home runs and things like that. He's like, if you, if you have a guy that will, will take his single up the middle, he's like, duck. Just throw it in the middle and duck. Hell, it's a single. Who cares, right? right. I'm like, all right. Yeah, maybe, maybe I can take a single over a home run. But I, the whole mindset of trying to throw Miguel Cabrera or somebody like that down the middle to try to get them out was – it was just a higher level of thinking that I wasn't ready. I wasn't really ready to try to go out there and hypothesis, or not hypothesis, but try to go experiment with. You yeah. Know? I wasn't ready for that just yet, especially throwing 88 miles an hour. Like, come on. Who the hell? Ch- oh, I challenged way too many people but um, down the middle. But um, actually, the, the guy that was my biggest thorn in my side was probably a guy named Wilson Betterman. Hmm. And this dude, I, if he had or Salvador Perez catch for the um, Royals, and oddly enough, Wilson Betterman played for the Royals time too. Um, if, if I have, if they had a hundred at bats against me, I guarantee both of them have eighty hits apiece. Really? I, I bet you they're hitting eight hundred. Isn't that weird? Oh my gosh, they murdered me. Huh. Absolutely murdered me. Tito used to make a joke. Um, <laughs> I think Salvador Perez hurt his knee or um, hurt his leg, and um, he wasn't in the lineup that day. He was. Um, he might. He, I don't think he's on a DL or not yet, but. Um, I came in, that five fifth or sixth inning. Uh, we were up by one or maybe down by one, something like that. And he goes, I see Salvador. goes to me. He goes, hey, man, I see Salvador president on crutches going to get his batting gloves on. I said, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you're at 80-some pitches. He thinks this is your last inning going back out there. He's probably going to try to get in the bat against you. I said, he's on crutches. He goes, think that don't stop him from getting a home run off of you? I said, you're probably right, you know. <laughs> Just like little stuff like that, like – um, in the clubhouse and uh, dugout and stuff. But, like, that, it was well known. When I went to um, Kansas City, it was just a running joke in the clubhouse, Wilson Betterment usually hit seventh, eighth, ninth, somewhere around there. Salvador Press time was hitting probably five, six. They were going to hit one, two whenever I, whenever I pitched. Most of bats possible. You know, just put them, stack them on the top of the lineup and let them hit. And sure as hell, they, they hit yeah. a lot. But, yeah, that was – that was uh, Wilson Betterman probably – he probably owns me the – Hilmer Salvador Press probably owned me the most um, in my career. But, uh, yes. All right, so best stadium you ever played in that you, you walk out and you just go, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here. Boston, Fenway yeah, Park. Yeah, yeah. I've got a Peppa Pig up there. Um, 2016, we won the uh, – well, won the World Series. We won the division round against Boston. And, mind you, that Boston team that year, um, best team I've ever seen in my life. And we rolled through them. Um, but, oh, by the way, I was the last person to get David Ortiz out also. Um, I didn't know that. In his career. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, but. Wow. Um, I did not know that, man. When my daughters came down the field, this is before Ace was born. When they came down the field, my daughter, my oldest daughter at the time, had a Peppa the Pig stuffed animal. She drops it on Fenway. And my, my whole thought process was, oh, shit, it's so dirty and crap. Let's throw it away. I said, no, we're not. So I grabbed some more of that dirt, and I put it all over <laughs> Pepper the Pig. I rubbed it in. I still have that Pepper the Pig doll up there, and it still got dirt stains on it, and I'll never get rid of it because of the, it's Fenway Park's dirt. I know it's not the same dirt, 
that Ted Williams and you know yeah. Nomar and Babe Ruth and all these guys played on, but you know what? It is to me. Absolutely. It's, it's the aura of it. I've signed my, I've signed that wall back in the Green Monster. The whole when you walk into it, it's just like a it's a cathedral, man. It's yeah. like a I don't I have chill bumps when I'm thinking about it. Um just the whole like the whole thing, walking up to the field, walking into it, seeing the the old timey concession stands. There's movies in that damn park, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just it's it's amazing. Um and it's just didn't Wrigley are the only originals left, yes, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. the more Wrigley's are awesome too. And um if we would have won that World Series, I think Ace would have probably been named Wrigley, but um uh <laughs> the Ivy. I'm actually gonna try and plant that same ivy around my my fence here, just try to make it look that wall because I think it's there's nothing like it. And watch the people used to come there before BP and throw ashes on that ivy. Really? Of their of their loved ones because that's where they wanted to be buried and stuff. It's nuts, man. That's that stadium has you wouldn't believe the amount of people that do that. That's it's incredible. You know because that's their last dying that's their last wish. Like, hey, spread my ashes over the ivy at Wrigley. All right, dude, this is how old I am. Do you realize I still remember when they put lights up at Wrigley? No. In my life, and I, I think I've got, I may be remembering that wrong, but I'm almost positive. I need to, I should be pulling up. Let's, I think, let me see here. When did, when did. I'm just trying to think because I, I used to always think that like they didn't have lights because they were. They 1988, bro. 88. So you were like. Four. Yeah. You were alive, but you don't remember what was going on. What were you, four? Four. four yeah. yeah, you're four years old. So, yeah, 88. I remember that. I remember still back in the day because, you know, like I grew up watching the Braves. I told you mm-hmm. because the Rangers were so bad back then that all their games got blacked out. And because of the Superstation, if you lived out here, the only professional baseball you get to watch was Atlanta the Braves. Braves. That's why – Crazy. Dale Murphy, number three. Hey, Dale is an awesome human being. Hero. I can't believe – we still got to make that happen. I got. Yeah. I just got to at least meet him or something. Just That's so awesome. You hear that, Dale? Yep. I Dale Murphy, yeah. <laughs> please. I I mean, look, I, look, hold this. He's one superstar that you will never disappoint, I, know, I promise you. I know that the people that are listening to the regular podcast, if this is Dale, here he is, buddy. <laughs> Here's what we did. We tapped. We did like three swats. And right there, there's the Dale Murphy. <laughs> That's it, too. I know you were a catcher before you became a Golden Glove center fielder. I've got your USA card, dude, from when you played on the Olymp- for the Olympics. I've never accepted you in a Phillies uniform. Well, I accepted you, but I didn't like you in a Phillies uniform. <laughs> I loved you in an Atlanta Braves uniform. And so, hey, it's just a class act, dude. He's they always say, "Don't never meet your heroes." He's one that you would he will not disappoint. One of the best human beings I've ever met in my entire life. Wow. Just an outstanding human being. Him and Bobby Cox both. Well, all right, dude. So, everybody, this is just a warm-up for the Josh Tomlin show. That's all this was. This was just, you know, you sharing stories about being a professional athlete, about just going down memory. And that's what I wanted to do. I mean, look, dude, you – I mean, you know, like you said, 16, 17 years into that. And you're – Some people never even get a chance – as Rob Manfred calls it, a piece of metal. Never even get a chance to compete for that. Isn't that no, wild? No, no. And you've com- you've done it twice yeah. and you got one. We finally got one. Yeah. That <sighs> is what's nuts, brother. And I'll never even get a chance to play in the World Series. Not playing the World Series, playing the playoffs. It's yeah. Like, that's. Yeah. That's. Ah, well. Bless her heart. Well, I want more of these conversations. 
I, like I said, I'm making your plans, Texas Titans Media. We're going to make this thing happen. We should. So this is going to be the studio. It'll look uh, – we're going to yeah. check this out. It'll be a lot different by the time we yeah. do this. Yeah. So, well, brother, it's time. I love you. I love you too, brother. I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Hey, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, thank you so much for watching. Click like, subscribe. And if you got any questions for Josh or anything, put them in the comments. Get the algorithms going. If you're listening on the podcast, thank you. And like Josh mentioned, even though I did not prompt him to, always endeavor to improve. Always and always. I'm Jason. He's Josh. We're out.